You're listening to the Vint Podcast, bringing you expert interviews, alternative market insights, and exclusive access to the world of wine and spirits investing. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Vint Podcast. My name is Brady, joined, as always, in studio from across the United States by Billy Galenko. Billy, how are you doing? Very well, Brady. Thanks for being on the podcast again. <laughs> Our intro should automatically introduce us, I think. I feel like I say the same thing every time. Maybe we should start with like a Billy, Billy, Billy. I don't know. I, I, yeah, we can definitely mix it up a little bit. I, I'm pretty excited. You, For those of you in, the, in 2023, you may be able to see us via video. We might be filming these and putting them on YouTube per our head of growth demands or interests. So maybe you'll see us, but <laughs> I have purchased a new standing desk on wheels that I will be using for future podcasts. So you will have a dynamic background as opposed to my old setting. So that's pretty good. I need to need to get my setup a little bit more posh in here before we put us on video. Yeah. need to organize the wine bottles the right way, get the right labels facing facing the camera, that kind of thing. Yeah. So what can our listeners expect for this podcast today? Yeah, I think you have a little rant to go on related to Sherry. And so interested to hear that. And then later on in the episode, we're chatting with the folks from Alton Insights, which is a research group around alternative assets. They also provide some really great resources on, you know, like I said, a variety of alternative assets like art and wine and cryptocurrency and collectibles, and then some really unique tools like portfolio management tools to their users. So excited to talk with Dylan and Bradley over there. We'll intro them a little bit more formally once we're done. But yeah, they're they're great folks to have one in our just alternative asset community, but to have them on the podcast for a second time is a lot of fun. So yeah, we're it's nice to be at the stage where we're starting to have returning guests for the podcast. Right. But as you mentioned, yeah, I have a couple small axes to grind with Sherry, mainly because I, I think they're awesome wines and I think they're underappreciated. So just a, a couple fun facts, because people keep bringing up to me that Sherry's, you know, they always say it's too sweet for them. And they, they think of it as just a dessert wine. And and there are styles, PX or Pedro Jimenez and cream Sherry's that are sweeter. But the core styles are really interesting because they're basically all made from Palomino grape. And then the way that they're made makes drastically different wines. So I just kind of wanted to ramble quickly about those different types of wines. So there's, there's five types, core types of sherry outside of the sweet ones that are like very dry. They're they're bone dry. There's no sweetness. There could be some perceived sweetness in its form of like glycerol or nuttiness from oxidation. But they're... These are these are cooking sherries, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. They're, that's, they're, a, that's, a total, that's a totally different thing. Yeah, that's a different thing. Okay. And it's, it's just like <laughs> a, a fast, quick version. It could... It, I mean, they all start from generally the same base. Mm -hmm. So it is possible. But... What's interesting to me is I, I was actually doing some studying for my next upcoming exams, which I'm doing sparkling and fortified exams, too, on the same day. So as part of that research, I was diving deeper into sherry. And I had an interesting quote that I came across that was not only is sherry one of the is it dry, but it's one of the driest wines available in, <laughs> in the certain styles. So the two styles I'm talking about are Fino and Manzanilla. These sherries will look white in the glass. They're not you know, tawny or they're not closer to brown. That style, there's three different styles that can kind of have more color to them. The 
main one is Oloroso. And in between, there's Amontillado and Palo Cortado. They're kind of variations in between um, Finos and Manzanillas and Olorosos for, for their own reasons. And we can we don't have to get into those nuances for now. But basically, the two differences between the ones you're going to see the most, Fino and Manzanilla and Oloroso, are they basically make a base wine from the Palomino grape. So it's just a white wine. It's still... It, it's in a very warm climate, so you know it gets decently high in alcohol, not that high in acid. So there's not a lot of malic acid that needs to be converted into tartaric or lactic acid. It doesn't go through malolactic fermentation because all of that malic acid is eaten as the alcohol gets higher and the grapes produce sugar rather than more acid. But so these dry wines are basically put into a cask, and if they're going to be a fino or a manzanilla, they're fortified only to 15%. So they're bumped up, but it's only to 15% alcohol. Olorosos are fortified to 17%. And this is for a special reason is because when it's below 16% fortification, they can have this layer of yeast form that they call flor. F-L-O-R means flour in Spanish. But what's cool about that is it basically, they're going to fill these bottle or the barrels only up like three quarters. So there's all this headroom. And then in the finos and the manzanillas, this layer of flor forms. And what it does is it blocks out any oxygen from getting into the wines, like at all. And then on the same time, it's, you know, it's living yeast. So it's still eating um, basically nutrients and elements that are in that wine. So it does consume a little bit of alcohol. It does consume all of the glycerol and it consumes other bits and nutrients in the wine. So what's, what's really interesting, and this is called biological aging, is that wine's basically protected from the outside world as long as it, you know, exists. So they'll go through their process of aging individual barrels, and then they'll put them into what's called the Solera system, where they kind of, you know, merge with other wines and from different vintages and kind of get down into a single bottling. Some of those those systems are a little less long or intensive for Finos and Manzanillas. So basically what you get from a Fino and a Manzanilla is these white wines that are about 15% they're so dry because not only do they have no sugar, but all the glycerol that like, and I've said that a couple of times now, the glycerol is what kind of gives you that thicker mouth feel in, in some wines. It can come from higher alcohol wines, but it, it makes your mouth like when people say it's a fuller bodied white, think of like a really ripe Chardonnay. Maybe they tend to have higher glycerol. You kind of just feel it around your mouth a little bit more. Maybe like a really ripe Viognier has decent glycerol. So this is basically on your palate as dry as it can be. And another person I heard on a podcast recently was mentioning how Finos and Manzanillas, the difference between Finos and Manzanillas, Manzanilla is grown in a place called, or not grown, it's produced, basically vinified in a place called Baramita de San Lucar. I might be mangling that a little bit, but basically this little town right by the coast. Otherwise, it's exactly the same as a Fino. It's made in the same way. And people will call them salty. And sometimes there's a tasting note and they're like, oh, it's from the ocean breezes and that makes it salty. But the interesting expert that I kind of heard the other day pointed out that it's really because they're so dry. There's such an absence of that mouthfeel or sweetness that they come off your palate as being perceived as kind of salty. Um, Mm. And the other thing that they're also lacking is acetic acid or yeah, no, acetic. Yeah. Why am I thinking this? Volatile acidity. Yeah, acetic acid. And that is something that also means it pairs very well with meals that have vinegar in them because there's no acetic acid competing ah, back okay. and forth. So, seriously difficult kind of food to pair with. Exactly. Because <laughs> if you have a vinegary salad, it basically kills your, say you have a Sauvignon Blanc, it basically take, makes that one right. seem not acidic and you're just left. 
So that was a really technical way of me rambling about a certain type of sherry, but both Fino's and Oloroso styles are basically the best food wines possible. And they're made for food. They're not made for just sitting on their own. So some people, they can kind of be considered austere on their own because they are so dry, actually. But I encourage everybody to go explore sherries, ask people about them, um, ask your local like wine shop. Because they're so affordable. There's so much that goes into making them from the winery to the, the years in the barrels to the Solera systems. Like there's a lot of time and effort and you can end up finding them super cheap. So I think they're some of the best value wines out there and perfect for food. Yeah, and related to your so Sauvignon Blanc with a vinegary salad, isn't it true that Sauvignon Blanc without acid is pointless? Yeah. Yeah. According to that, <laughs> our buddy Nick Jackson said that a while back. Yeah. That said, the greenness and leafiness in some Sauvignon Blancs do make them good salad companions. Just be conscious of the dressing you're putting on. Just your 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 creamy dressings, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it could be <laughs> it could be vinegary. Just don't overwhelm yourself with just straight vinegar. Yeah, yeah. Well, hope, yeah. Hopefully, that will spur on some love for sherry and just fortified wines generally this holiday season, which is a great time to get into them when you're not... you know drinking maybe your brandies and other things like that. Yeah, it's just not for dessert. Keep an open mind. Pair yep. with them. Same with champagne and sparkling. Super Use versatile. Them. Use them outside Madeira of Madeira, too. Madeira, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, to, to, get in, to get into our interviews today, we, like I said, we have Alton Insights on in the form of Dylan Dietrich and Bradley Kalea, both of whom work in research side of the business, and they have a lot of really great insights to share about the alternative asset markets generally, about kind of our macro environment that we're in, and a few updates to share on new features and that they have on their platform and, and what they're looking forward to in 2023 in terms of serving our community. So hope you enjoy this conversation. Certainly reach out to us if you'd like to get connected with Bradley and Dylan, and we look forward to hearing from you all soon. Hey guys, thanks so much for joining us today. Really excited to be back on second time on the Vint Podcast. Thanks for having us back. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Dylan, do do you maybe want to give our audience, you know, we've already already kind of introed you guys, but do you want to give sort of the higher level or maybe more in the weeds overview of what Alton does and, and how you guys serve alternative investors? Yeah, of course. So back in kind of the spring of 2020, when this idea of fractionalizing alternative assets was was becoming more popular and prevalent. Our founder, Russ, noticed that there was really no third-party source of data and insights and research to kind of guide investors as they were diving into this space. And so that's kind of how the idea for, for Alton was, was born. And since then, the, the team has grown to support you know, at first fractional investors in, in a variety of ways, whether that's allowing them to kind of con- have a consolidated view of their different fractional investments and, and track their portfolio, for new assets to invest in, understand how, how they perform and how the broader markets are performing, and then providing kind of research to go along w- with all of that and to, to better explain kind of market dynamics. And that's kind of evolved a little bit over, over the last year or so, where what started as a focus in fractional has really broadened to making more of an effort to understand these different asset markets more broadly and, and to be of service and value to anybody who's collecting in these spaces in terms of really trying to wrap your arms around different market dynamics, how things are performing, what's under overvalued or, or appears to be things of that nature. Yeah, and we've had kind of a, a crazy year in the just you know the public markets generally, obviously, 
you know, moving into recession and these kinds of things, S&P, NASDAQ down. Alternative assets of, I, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly seeing conversation online about moving to physical to physical assets. So we want to kind of use this conversation as maybe a year in review, sort of in terms of your guys' learnings over the last year. I wanted to ask you, Bradley, kind of what's been the the focal point if you want to divide the year in, in two different halves, maybe like the first half of 2022, the second half, you know, what have kind of been the things that have stood out to you in terms of focuses in the marketplace? Yeah. So this has definitely been a year where we're seeing, and it's been across the board. You know, we cover, as mentioned, everything from wine, art to sports collectibles and memorabilia. And it's really this year, you know, to sum it up in a sentence, it, it would be like, it's, the haves and the have-nots. It's the separation between the highest end of the market and quality versus what we saw in the days coming out of COVID where basically every asset out there was rising. And, and that was clearly unsustainable. Like I think everybody knew that. One of the areas though where in wine and in the fine art market that we're seeing and also in, in some of the sports things that we can also touch on, memorabilia especially, is the highest end of those markets are having record-breaking runs still that have mm -hmm. continued. And it's been, it's probably a good thing in the long run to see that that maybe there's some sanity re-entering the market. But yeah, we saw, you know, in sports memorabilia, record-breaking sale, really after record-breaking sale across multiple sports. Boxing had a Muhammad Ali belt, set an all-time record. Golf had um, a set of irons from Tiger Woods go for over 5 million. Did the Michael Jordan jersey go for over 10 million. And then also coming in was obviously that Mickey Mantle card that went for over 12 million. And, and those are the highest end items in their respective fields. And we continue to see that in the wine markets as well, where you're now seeing very specifically maybe DRC or your highest end of champagne really carrying those markets where at the lower end, a lot of the wine values have somewhat maybe pulled back or at least they're stable. And so it's definitely been a market that's targeting the highest quality items out there for sure. Yeah, on on that front, how how do some of the items, and I guess this might be showing some of my ignorance on like, say like the sneaker space, but the items that have like a generally lower cap, things that aren't getting into the like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands per per unit item, like how does that impacting some of the other categories that maybe have a little more of a cap as it turns to their price point. Yeah, I think those categories have, whether it's whether it's a factor of their, you know, market cap or not, have, have generally fared worse. I think some of that has to do with, you know, that that lower entry point and that that greater degree of accessibility can lead to a greater degree of speculative activity. And so in areas like in areas that are not at the peak of the sports card market, in the sneaker market across the board, trading cards. NFTs, video games, you saw assets that were kind of maybe more accessible and, and kind of maybe led the charge upwards, really pull back very, very swiftly when kind of speculation fell out of vogue with the Fed raising rates and just the monetary environment becoming much tighter. You know, all of those things kind of really fell out of vogue at the same time and, and to a similar degree as well, you know, pullbacks in the 25 to, you know, call it 40% range, you know, higher in some cases, not not uncommon at all. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I got, I fell into the speculative nature when it came to um, kind of like 
April, or I guess it was March for the the Air King. So I, I got on the watch train a while back and then I, I really thought they were going to discontinue the Air King. And it turns out like a ton of people did. So the speculation <laughs> there now is like, oh man. <laughs> so it's kind of funny with some of those, especially like I was the epitome of some people who are just getting into some of these spaces, not necessarily doing all of their research and being like, oh, I got this. And let me just like put money in and then be like, hmm. I think that's a good point too, because I think a lot of the categories that have had the hardest time saw a lot of kind of quote unquote tourist activity where people were getting in and perhaps with the intention of being long-term, but once the market starts heading in the other direction, it's like, you know, maybe I was short-term after all, and maybe this isn't kind of a long-term venture for me. And I think that that's also another place where you see differences in performance between categories where categories like art and wine have held up very well, because I think the amount of tourist activity in those categories is, is far less than it is in some of the other more speculative arenas we've seen. Yeah. What, you know, when you have folks that use your resources or use your portfolio manager and what are you hearing from investors when they kind of come inbound to you guys and, and ask your perspective where you speak with them one-to-one, they reach out. What are some of the questions that people are asking you maybe in the last two quarters and has that changed over 2022? Are people looking for different kinds of resources or what's that conversation been like? Yeah, I, I think yeah, go ahead, Bradley, sir. Just, you know, real quick, we started doing our research reports this year where we're targeting asset classes ranging from, you know, an art report, sports collectibles, and then also like a briefing just on the general market where we include features on wine. And I think those have become serious reading for a lot of people that we are a community because in the, again, going back to, it was so easy basically to make money. The money was very cheap. It was, you know, if there was any opportunity out there, if you threw something at it, things were going up. We saw everything from, you know, sports cards and video games across the board were just rising comic books. And then, you know, as the markets tightened, we produce, you know, the research that, you know, we put together on a, either a quarterly or period basis. And now it, it's definitely being received. And I feel like that is, it's a great for us as a company that obviously looks a lot more, looks a lot more in depth to these asset classes and these topics. Now, you know, people are definitely looking for advice or they're looking for just the, the analysis on these asset classes as before it definitely wasn't that way. I think, I think it also brings into kind of the, the forefront of focus, like, what are the historical precedents? Like what are, what does historical track record look like in some of these categories? Because I think it was natural for most, if not all investors over the last two years to be very zoomed in and look and having, you know, a, a pretty intense recency bias. I think that's, that's human. And that's, that's kind of the way things go. But now that we're entering this new environment where not everything is going up, it's like, okay, let's take a step back and better understand like, how do how does X category perform in X environment where inflation is roaring and the Fed's raising rates and you know how how does that affect things and like should we be expecting correlations to equity and equity and bond markets to be low and you know those weren't those weren't really the questions that are top of mind for people when things are are going straight up. Yeah, I think we saw that like in the in the mortgage market, right? People like four and a half percent. This is ridiculous. Who would buy a house at four and a half? you know, four and a half percent. And it's like, that's actually like, you know, well below average historically. And even 
low relative to even the most recent five to six, seven years. This isn't, you know, this isn't even new in the, in the last decade. <laughs> so yeah, definitely that, I think that permeated a lot of different markets. It's a thesis that we had too. I think, you know, even from the onset of our business in terms of like the way that we were modeling the markets, we recognized pretty early on that the most expensive assets, you know, returned the best, you know, had the best return profiles. So I think operating in that top, you know, 0.5%, 0.1% of the market is, you know, that sounds like based on what you guys are saying, that holds true across all of these different categories. You know, and along those lines as well, I, I think I would look for that as we kind of continue. I just think that that market, we're getting out of the fall art season. Obviously, we have some wine auctions that always come up in December. And I think that trend is just going to be one that continues because at this point, it's now I think people are going to really start being a lot more selective and where they put their money towards as opposed to even in recent months. I still think that there were some assets doing a little better than you could argue maybe they should have. So I think over the next few months, you're just going to see people continue to kind of cover you know, themselves and make sure that they have, you know, they're diversified, but they're also going to make sure that they're comfortable. So yeah, the targeting of the high end is just going to be a trend. I think that we'll definitely see continue there. Are you seeing any assets that really touted themselves as not really correlated to the markets, kind of following it a bit more closely than you would have expected? I, I think wine is staying on kind of its its track, its traditional track of not being very correlated. But like crypto, for example, was it touted itself back in the day is not correlated. Now it's just like what the market does, but like 10 times either direction. So it's like, what are you guys seeing on your side there? Yeah, it's hard, right? Because like wine is definitely an exception. I think art's been an exception, but like most assets, you know, this is a rare, rare year where both bonds and stocks are getting pummeled, like both at both parts of a 60-40 portfolio are, are under the same stress. And I think, you know, really most assets are experiencing the same the same turmoil across the board. So short term, all of a sudden, like correlation is very high at the exact moment you wouldn't want it to be high. Obviously, you know, you mentioned crypto and, and Bitcoin plummeted with, you know, inflation peaking and, and you know, you hear the arguments that it's kind of like a forward-looking hedge on inflation and, you know, to each, to each their own on, on whether or not that's the way they want to view it. But I think it's, it's been a challenging moment just because in the short term, correlations are, are so high for most assets, mm-hmm. but, it, and that matters. I mean, I think, I think generally you want to measure it over a longer time period, but if, but if kind of all of your assets are going, you know, south at the same time, that's certainly less than ideal. That's, you know, mainly related to the like short-term macro environment, though, is what is, was that kind of your 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 thesis and, and explanation for most of these assets? Right. I, and I think, you know, so many of them were such beneficiaries of the exact environment that we no longer have, you know, where money is no mm-hmm. longer cheap and and the Fed is very committed to kind of stifling inflation, which, you know, threatens to stifle you know, economic growth. It's it's funny, even if you look at kind of historical performance for the art market, you know, there's there's the saying a lot of times like the stock market isn't the economy. So, you know, the economy might be in a recession, mm-hmm. but the stock market's, you know, looking forward and it's actually mm-hmm. moving ahead in some cases. And, and the art market actually has more closely tracked, you know, GDP and economic growth than it has than it has kind of, you know, equity sentiment or, or things of that nature. So, you know, a situation where economic growth is, is being threatened by monetary policy is a challenging one, I think, for 
for art and assets like it that that are trying to kind of emulate that historical track record. That's interesting. Definitely. I, I think on, on on that note, it's interesting to talk about like maybe the different dynamics of these assets. And maybe maybe let's dive a little bit more into whiskey and wine and what you guys are kind of seeing from that point. Cause as a consumable, it is kind of a, a unique asset in that class and also as something that is quote unquote improving over time, depending on if it's a, a whiskey and cask or like wine and bottle. Can you tell us what you guys are kind of seeing in this macro scale now? Yeah, definitely. You know, wine and whiskey are whiskey is still I won't say early because there is data out there, but in terms of like, there's definitely a lot more long-term data and just a lot more volume front with wine to be able to, I think, accurately say that it is very uncorrelated to the market. You know, one of the big characteristics that is different than most old asset classes is the inconsistencies within wine and whiskey markets. And that can, I think, maybe be a negative word, but it, it's a positive as an investor. Right? You have inconsistencies in yields, you have inconsistencies in quality and taste mm-hmm. and ratings, yep. and all of that plays such a role in, you know, I, I think I'm interested in, in seeing even more research and some of that may be coming from Alton on, like, when we start to see a rating come out, how that really does impact, and if we see any within the market uh, if we start to see any consistencies or if we start to see, you know, things match up, if, you know, one wine has a 98 versus a 99 or a hundred, one year is the 99 or a hundred going to always outperform the 98 depend, you know, across producers. But in mm-hmm. whiskey is really that same way where, you know, I think that there are maybe factors in terms of climate and the changing and the yield differences that maybe don't impact whiskey quite as severely as the wine markets, mm-hmm. but that, that's definitely where you have. And then, and then also, I think one of the other big qualities with those is similar to the fine art market and also the highest end of the card and memorabilia markets is once you get that, I guess you would call it like your top end or your grail of a wine or of a whiskey, or you know, you have something that the market has determined to be the best of the best. It only comes publicly out there once or twice every couple decades you know this is not liquidated literally as much as you know an asset like we talk about like michael jordan's rookie cards there's one in every sports auction and so that's you know these markets are very they are incredibly unique and for wine and whiskey in particular there are just these external factors and, and i didn't even touch on the you know the ones like tariffs and you know just global factors that influence prices. So yeah, definitely a market that has a lot of things influencing it beyond just, you know, the standard auctions. Yeah. I just add too, it's like, obviously consumption is, is such a big factor in both markets. And that's not the kind of thing that slows down in this type of market because of who those asset classes cater to, right? There are occasions and in, in gifting and reasons for consumption that persist pretty much regardless of economic circumstance because of the, the specific clientele. And that, again, is is a pretty unique aspect of those markets that that provides some protection where, where others just don't have it at all. And, and consumer and collector interests, like how it you know may increase or decrease is interesting too. You were talking about maybe auctions. Auctions are a little bit less on our radar just because of maybe questions of provenance and these kinds of things that could come up. So 
you know, if a, a particular wine becomes more interesting or you see more supply of it on like the auction circuit, it might actually mean that there's less supply available within like the investor circles. And so I, you know, that might play a factor, you know, probably with wine more so than whiskey because whiskey doesn't have some of those same considerations. But yeah, I, I, I like the parallels between thinking about the auction market and then thinking about like the highest provenance investor markets. I also like how you were saying when I, when I like this happened, actually came up when I was over at Thanksgiving, basically my, I had a few uncles be like, well, you know, this recession's coming and what, what have you, and people aren't going to be drinking maybe that, that highest end wine. And I was like, well, the people who are actually most recession proof are the people who can afford to drink, you know, DRC on a regular basis. So they're, they're not going to really cut down on their, <laughs> exorbitant consumption but something on on that on a different vein i guess similar vein but different side of the coin is is on the whiskey front i'd be interested to hear your guys thoughts a little bit more on this because once it is bottled it won't necessarily you know it's it's kind of like a time capsule it won't really change in the bottle there's less consumption overall it's more one of those things people hold up and either try to complete a whole collection or put it out for people to see how how are you seeing as I guess, right, my main question kind of comes from the fact that there was artificial, not necessarily artificial, but natural lack of supply, just because the the waves that we've seen in single malt production over the years, there wasn't a ton. And now that everybody's like, cool, the money's here, it seems that demand's here to stay since the early 2000s, really, in single malt. Now that more supply is coming online, how are you seeing people kind of flock to either like the, the collectible bottlings or is it more the aged bottlings that are like 50 plus years old that are drawing attraction? Like, are you seeing any trends on that front? Yeah, I mean, it definitely, it's a market that in the early days, when it, I think, first became an alternative asset class and, and really is making the auction headlines, it was super dominated on the Asian markets, you know, were very drawn to your highest end, your Macallans, you know, your, your single malts from Speyside and those. And I, in terms of like the bottling, and I don't really have ever seen enough on that front to say that, you know, design or anything along those lines is really driving prices, but it, it definitely it fit into that luxury mold really quickly where, you know, we see, we see it with everything from handbags and watches to, to fine art, where if, if you are an established name in, and in whiskey's case, you know, in the hills of Scotland, like if you can really establish yourself as that luxury brand, and it's the name. I, I just think that people are buying. And, and I don't even know how much it is. Obviously, on a record front, we see years and time, you know, in cask influencing prices. But just on a broader scale at auction, especially now things have toned maybe a little bit down. But in these early auctions, it was just it wasn't it was like there was nowhere near enough quantity of, you mm-hmm. know, just taking as an example, like McAllen hitting those markets to meet the demand in Asia and that's spilled over into the United States as well and over time, but it's still lagging significantly. And what's been really amazing about that, just like one more point, has been um, how much pressure has been on those markets from instability in Hong Kong to like, you know, the, the zero kind of COVID policies that have been in place. And it's been pretty amazing between whiskey and champagne to me, how well those markets have withstood considering the amount of pressure and probably bearishness that reasonably could have been on them. But yeah, at the high end, it's all about the name. Uh, and if you have an established brand, just as you know, an example, again, the McAllen, like 
that's always really going to be fetching a fair price. It's like a Monet or, or a Van Gogh basically on these markets. Yeah, I, I think I think you're, it's a really interesting example there too because champagne and whiskey are, are on like polar ends of the consumption scale. Like champagne, even the more expensive ones are more readily consumed. And like Dom, for example, there's a lot, a fair bit of that produced every year, Dom Perignon. But on the on the whiskey side, yeah, that was it has been interesting. And that's kind of where my interest is in the category. And, and we've seen this a little bit in the cask that we were able to exit at, you know, over about like a 29% return for our investors is there's just not enough old whiskey coming like around and you can't make more old whiskey quickly. Like you still need to wait 10 more years before you're, you know, eight year old whiskey right now as an 18 year old. So I, I think it's going to be interesting to track how that continues to evolve as a little bit more inventory comes online each year and maybe different producers. And then how maybe some of those closed distilleries like Karazawa maybe may maintain their certain level because there's literally can never be any more produced. And I, and I think questions around supply are, are fair in, in any market like this, where it, it's not like it's a, a brand new collecting market by, by any means. Right. But, but the performance numbers have been so strong in recent years that it draws new people to the space. It draws new businesses to the space. There's more auction events. There's more channels where sales are taking place. And and I think, you know, over time that there can be fatigue for certain certain producers or, or certain bottlings and that, that show up very frequently. And, and there becomes a separation, as we've alluded to in, in all of the markets between the, the best of the best, the stuff that can't be replaced, that, that isn't available all that often. And the stuff that does show up at every single auction event. Dylan, I, w- I wanted to pivot a little bit to talk about your guys' platform and some of the changes or maybe additions that you guys have made over the last year, or really, I guess, since we talked. I'm trying to think it was Feb, was it February last year or was it in 2021 that we spoke last? It was early have... 22. I think that's okay. right. Well, well, since then, you want to talk a little bit about some of the moves that Alton has made in terms of product offerings and services and resources and yeah, just how you guys are serving investors right now. Yeah. I think as, as Bradley alluded to earlier, a big effort, at least on, on our front this year from a research perspective has been providing more resources on broader markets, whether that's sports, whether that's art or whether that's providing Intel basically across markets in kind of short form, you know, fact sheet format. It's not something that in markets other than art and, and wine and spirits that, that exists to, to a very large extent where people are thinking about these things from an asset class perspective and, and trying to provide thought leadership in terms of you know what areas of the market are performing well and, and why. So that's a very kind of new pursuit for a lot of categories. And so that's been a big focus for us this year. And in addition, in, in the background, I think we're continuing to fortify our kind of repository of data, so to speak, more to come on this in, in 2023, a lot more to come on this in 2023. But we want to be able to provide collectors and investors with as replete a, a data source across alternative asset categories as possible to continue to better understand these markets and, and the assets within them, the, the kind of subcategories within them, how they differ in composition, how they differ in market performance. And so a lot of work being done on that front. There's, there's quite, a, quite a bit of data out there and it's just incredibly, incredibly fragmented. None of it looks the same. 
none of it, you know, behaves the same. So a lot more to be done from us on on that front, but continue in, in the meantime to expect, you know, tools for, for fractional investors and, and research for collectors and fractional investors across all these categories. And in, in terms of your, your portfolio product, you do offer a product for people to kind of aggregate and view all of their alternative asset holdings in one place. Has, has that evolved over this past year? How has that, have you seen a lot of feedback for people wanting more of those kinds of services and like, yeah, who, yeah. who you guys are building that, but you know, what kind of advances are being made? Yeah, we're trying to replace spreadsheets. So every time we see yeah. like a, a, a fractional investor on Twitter sharing their their spreadsheet of you know investments across different platforms, we're we're trying to get them onto onto the portfolio manager on on our site. And one of the big points of demand has been for for more automated syncing, which you know we have made some advances on and are hoping to do a lot more of. I think it's challenging because all of the fractional marketplaces themselves, as as you well know, are are growing and have all sorts of tech initiatives to pursue, but the you know more automated syncing to allow users to be able to more easily kind of plug their holdings into you know a consolidated portfolio manager and understand things is is something that we continue to try and move the ball forward on. But we've certainly made some strides on that front and made some strides in terms of how frequently you know pricing data is becoming available for for that portfolio manager. So. You know, each day at the close of trading, the next day you have fresh market values in there and can really understand, you know, pretty close to pretty close to real time, you know, how your portfolio composition is changing. Yeah, I can only imagine how difficult that might be because I mean, we're constantly working on updating our portfolio information. So if you have to work with a lot of startups like <laughs> us who are working on their own stuff, then <laughs> I can Exactly. Imagine. Exactly. There's 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 plenty plenty to keep all of us busy. Is, yeah. the, is there a big need for more collaboration between like you guys who are maybe more of an aggregator and a research and resource hub between all the other alternative asset platforms? Or do you feel like you can provide, you know, this portfolio view, aggregated portfolio view outside of more collaboration? Is there a need for that? It's it's always helpful when there's more collaboration. I think the capability is there to to do a lot without it. And from a research perspective, there's certainly a lot that we're able to cobble together from, you know, third party sources and otherwise to to kind of glean insights that you might not otherwise find. Because I think that's the that's the biggest challenge of the space is all the information. Most of the information is out there somewhere, but it's you have to go to twelve different sources and make sense of them separately and kind of tie them together. Just kind of the the value we're adding with our research is is kind of doing that traveling and, and bridging that bridging that divide. But always easier when 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 things are collaborative. And, and we found that most kind of parties in the space are, are quite willing to be collaborative because I think we're, you know, providing insights and shedding light on these markets in, in a unique way that only serves to educate people better and help them better understand what they're what they're allocating capital to. Awesome. So now that we kind of have a sense of what you guys are going to be doing in 2023, are there any, what, what are you looking forward to? Like now that this year is kind of wrapping in terms of new asset classes or, or potential developments, what do you guys have your eyes on for 2023? Yeah, I think just obviously there's a side of it that's the continuation of what we're seeing now, which is the high end and the quality items getting probably the respect that they deserve. And I also think like there's going to be some categories and some areas 
that continue to emerge on a wine front. I continue to kind of hold out and wait on the northwest region of the United States to kind of start to challenge California a little bit more on an investment side with wine. I know the money that's being pumped in over there to grow that region on and to really develop it as you know a major player in the wine world. And it's also being aided by temperature issues down in Napa and Sonoma. And then on a whiskey front, I just think it's really going to be about more consistency and more data coming through. That's the stuff that we're super interested in, kind of geek out on. And so you know, that, that it's a market that, it, again, it's been around, it's nothing new, but, but I still think that there's just so much we can learn uh, between the buyer habits, how the market's going to really hold up long-term, what, whether it's distillers or you know, if it's certain ages are going to separate themselves as tr- truly investment grade versus you know, just a really great high-end collectible. So yeah, th- that's probably all we're looking at. And then I think outside of maybe the liquid asset mm-hmm. space, um, I am pretty excited to see the photography market develop. We started to see that a little bit in the art world at the end of, or actually in the spring and fall seasons, they, we had actually the top two photograph sales ever. One was the flat iron in New York. It was a photograph taken in the thirties, I believe. And then in earlier in the year, Man Ray had a photograph that is currently the record holder. Both went for more than $11 million. And I think that that's going to be an area that as we look at like art pieces that are becoming the central feature in someone's house or in a gallery, and we're going to start to see photographs as they kind of the industry and taste shifts towards kind of a more modern appeal are really going to be more accepted. And so that, that's the one area outside of the wine and whiskey world that I'm looking forward to seeing grow in 2023 and beyond. Hmm. Are you looking at like, when it goes to photographs, does it go all the way back to like, are daguerreotypes or like really you know 1800s photographs like valued or is it like the artist you know the photographer meets like really nicely preserved you know larger developed pieces yeah i I think a really a combination there of both so i i believe that we're going to see i also think like sports photographs are an area where you know you have um there's fun images of like the famous ruth bows out and one of the issues with some of those are they're not really presentable in a lot of ways. So I think we'll see maybe those develop a little bit where maybe they're built out on canvases and they're not maybe an original print or even as they're actually some photographs are graded. So like they get a type one if it's an original that was produced within two years of the photo being taken. So you know, th- that's just where I, I am. I think it's going to be a combination. I think you're going to see like photographs that you know, we're featured in Time Magazine and things like that. When you have those originals start to emerge out in the public sphere over time, I, I just think tastes are going to evolve maybe away from some of the master's style artworks and people are going to favor, you know, photographs that can kind of fit the mold for a gallery or for someone's you know, interior design nice. look. Yeah, I know Brady probably wants to hop in here, but I, I just have to note that when you were talking about the wine and whiskey side of things you did mention like liquidating some assets sometimes and then when you started with the photography you said you want to see how it develops so i really like how you've been easing these things in there <laughs> puns all around yep 
Maybe that's a, ser- a service you guys can add to your. your the puns are free. Yeah, <laughs> the, puns the puns are free. free. Don't worry. Not, not, the puns, not, stay for the not going to build an agency. Not going to build an agency. <laughs> so then maybe let's go out to macro for 2023. I mean, I'm, <laughs> everyone wants to guess and you know be right, and we'll probably all be wrong. But what are kind of what, what are the things that are motivating the steps you guys plan to take in 2023? Things that you're focusing on related to macro, what are the motivating factors? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's pretty simple and it's all, it's a lot of the same things that investors in, in more traditional markets are waiting on. And I think we're, it certainly feels like we're in for a continued kind of challenging stretch because I think, I think the first place you look is, is the fed and what they plan to do. And all indications are that they're, they're keen to persist with, with monetary tightening. They're keen to persist with raising rates signs have started to flip a little bit, but not in such a persistent way that they'd be encouraged to take their foot off the gas and, and kind of reverse some of their their plans. So I think until that changes, and, and there's no reason to believe it'll be in the next couple of months, I think there's probably some more pain ahead in a lot of the categories that, that we cover. Looking beyond that, though, I think it's for me, I'm, I'm very excited to see that once the dust settles, once this kind of great reset has unfolded, you know what what are we left with because undoubtedly so many of these categories do have larger audiences than they did pre 2020 that are going to be around for the long term and so you know what do those audiences look like when when the dust settles and things are a little less tight and and what does demand look like in in which categories have kind of carved out you know more sustainable long term kind of fruitful outlooks so i think that'll be really really interesting to watch as it unfolds and to see which ones may have may have kind of blown the opportunity for for the foreseeable future if we get some stabilization or maybe a little bit of an uptrend into like the start of 2023 do you anticipate that funds will start to maybe move out of some of those public equities that were down in like into these alternative assets, or do you think that maybe a lot of that shakeout has already happened? I think there's there's a possibility for some rotation, but I think it'll look different than the way the markets went up in 2020 and 2021. You know, it, not to beat a dead horse, but I think quality over quantity is going to mm. remain a key point of emphasis. I don't think a rising tide is going to lift all boats this time around. I think I think people have learned some lessons and, and learned to be a bit more discerning in terms of, you know, which which assets in these categories, you know, are kind of all weather assets, and, and which ones, you know, have have audiences that are around for the long term, and, and where there will be a willing buyer in a variety of market conditions. So I, I think it'll look different, but I think all signs point to there being, you know perhaps easier and more intuitive ways for mainstream investors to access these assets that maybe don't require so much informa- kind of research and information day-to-day on specific assets, but the ability to just gain exposure thematically seems like that's that's somewhere the industry is, is heading in a lot of these categories. So you know, I think there'll be a lot of interesting insights to glean from that data. You guys still run into many people leery of alts as a category because all they think of alternative assets is is crypto or yeah and i know dylan's really leading that charge to get this sector renamed so that we can separate from maybe some of the more traditional alternative assets and also maybe away from cryptocurrencies but 
Yeah, and I think obviously there are some markets that are impacted a lot more looking at NFTs and maybe even digital art that also pretends to be NFTs as well. But yeah, it's definitely, and it's understandable. I mean, I think a lot of that stuff was already very confusing and maybe had a layer of, I don't know if scam is is the proper word to throw out in all cases, but there was definitely a lot of, people making a lot of money that could pull the rug at any time. And that basically happened across a lot of sectors there. So yeah, no doubt. And I think that and it always just hurts the sector in general, but I still think the adoption is so early that the high end investor who's really into wine or really into art, you know, they've weathered these storms they've been around for years or Hopefully they're reading the research that we put out so that they know what the market's been like for years and can still feel comfortable putting you know their money into some of these asset classes that are established. Yeah, one one thing that I think is is so important to understand, it's not just NFTs, but across so many of these alternative asset categories, the last two years have kind of created, you know, this this very short-term orientation and it's kind of like the worst of some of these assets in many ways where where there can be a boom and bust nature but when you kind of zoom out and look historically like in a lot of these assets the money is made over the very long term it's it's not it's not the quick flips it's not the the projects or or the assets that suddenly become very popular and go up you know 30 40% in a few months it's 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 buying blue chip assets and holding them for a long time and that's where not only are you achieving returns but you're doing so in a way that that is less correlated to other asset classes where the risk is lower where the volatility is lower and kind of the the worst parts of investor psychology are, are removed from the equation so I think it's it's definitely going to be a challenge for a lot of people who were introduced to these categories over the last two years to kind of reset and and, and break that that very short term orientation. But I think I think it's necessary and and it's it's a healthier way to kind of approach these these spaces. Yeah, I, I definitely see where you're saying with that. I also think in on the crypto side, what is interesting is I'm I'm a crypto believer. I do have enough of my portfolio, but not in the speculative sense. I've been in this for over half a decade now. And I think the weird part about that is it's been so public, the development. It's like it's really this technology that's going to be evolve over time and potentially add value to the, the world and the ecosystem. But it's been so publicly being developed that people are getting in and out and they're like, oh, it's not working. Like, you know, give me 10, 15 years down the line, then we'll see where we're at with like actual crypto and the use of the technology. That's, I think, where the true value is going to come out and people conflating it with some of these assets that are, you know, have been around for decades and are showing, you know, consistent performance. I, I think they're just two completely different things and people tried to lump them all together. And I think that's just kind of crazy. So I think what you're saying is kind of spot on just looking at that longer term kind of runway and even historical data for that matter. Well, Bitcoin, you, you would put Bitcoin and Ethereum into those like blue chip assets I, of that category there would would you well, not yeah, or? for that category maybe but i still think mm-hmm. there's they're still pr- proving out their use cases and what their true value may or may not be mm-hmm. rather than what their stated use case is i think that's going to continue to evolve as well i don't know what you guys have to say on that one but that's my point of view yeah i think i think you're right that the fact that the ecosystem is is built in public and that there's so much attention on it 
is probably counterproductive in, in some ways. And I think that that too lends itself to a very short-term orientation and, and the crypto space is going to be in for some some more hard months ahead. Then you look at things that are happening that, that might be more bullish for the long term. The fact that, you know, ledger wallets are are suddenly having like record sales because people are understanding the value of custodying their own crypto in the midst of the disaster that is FTX, you know. And so you start to think about like longer term what what the value proposition was was intended to be and, and how different it is from where it kind of went over the last few years where everything kind of did become very institutionalized and like we're putting leverage on things that shouldn't be levered up. And it's just kind of like rehashing all of the mistakes that the tra- traditional financial system has made over the years. Yeah, the cold the cold wallet, I think that's a good flag because it seems to indicate that the response that people are having isn't crypto is bad. It's the they're they're able to 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 separate the institutions, the yeah. centralized institutions that are handling it and the actual yeah. cryptocurrency space, which I think is important. Exactly. It wasn't a crypto problem. It was a corporate governance issue. Yeah. So I think the question is like, will people broadly see it as as such, or will they see it as a crypto problem? So it's a pretty pretty tough reputational one to to bounce back from <laughs> for for the mainstream public, right? But yeah. you know, I think it takes it's 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 tough in the moment to for for those who haven't been involved in the space or or have been skeptical of of the space to look at this as anything other than kind of an, and I told you so moment, which um, mm-hmm. is, isn't certainly isn't unfair. Right. But I think, you know, there, there are counterpoints to be made as well. Well, thank you guys so much. Yeah. really appreciate your time, both in talking about what you guys are working on, but so just so much market insight. So we'd love to have you back next year and we'll maybe continue to do this. Can't wait. We'll be here. Awesome. Right, thank you guys. Yep. Yep. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Well, that was our interview with Bradley and Dylan from Alton Insights. I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did and learned a fair bit about the macro alternative market as well as the wine and spirit space. I'm really excited to see what the macro kind of alt space looks like in 2023 and how it involves in the current economic conditions. But we do know one thing we're very excited about what the wine and spirits prospects hold. And I encourage everyone to go to Alton Insights to leverage their reports, their tools. It's very handy for both managing your alternative portfolios, as well as learning about the market as a whole. On the Vint side of things, we'll be back next week with another episode of the Vint podcast. And we will have some updates for you very soon on collections. I know everybody's anxiously waiting and we hope to be able to share those probably on the episode next week, if not very soon after. So have a great rest of your week. Cheers.